Okay, Patrick, very exciting week. We have a guest on that you have been talking about and wanting to have on for a while. Um, So tell me about Brad Palumbo, and then I'll give his official title. Well, Brad, thanks for joining us. Brad Palumbo, who I follow uh, every day on Twitter. He uh, wrote for the Washington Examiner. I'm sorry, you could go through his bio, but he's extremely insightful. Uh, I think he's on point on on most... uh, Certainly, from a political standpoint, um, Brad, are you are you actually a libertarian, or like, how would you classify yourself from a political standpoint? Yeah, that's actually not a straightforward question, as much as it seems like. So, I guess <laughs> I would say I'm on the conservative side of libertarian, and on the libertarian side of conservative. So, somewhere, mm-hmm. somewhere in that in that kind of middle ground. Okay. All right. I want to give your official because you're also a fellow podcaster, right? So Brad is a fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, senior contributor at Young Voices and host of the Breaking Boundaries podcast on Apple and Spotify, which we're going to ask you more about. Now, Brad, I I think this is this is like obvious and open to the public, but I find this fascinating about you. You you also are openly gay, right? You're gay, kind of leaning conservative. Yes. So I've, I, I, I no, it is, it is interesting. It's something I've written about and talked about. Um, it's less of an issue among younger conservatives. Honestly, if you look at like polling on, on Republicans under 35, massively overwhelmingly support gay marriage. So it's an interesting experience and I'm not one to pretend like, Oh, there's no more homophobia in the world. Everything's fine. Of course not. But I will say I've had Working in conservative journalism, I worked at a conservative magazine and website, the Washington Examiner here in D.C. Um, I met a lot of people and got to know a lot of people who have very conservative religious views. But with only a few exceptions, you know, everybody has treated me with a lot of kindness and empathy and, and respect. I and love so that. I, see, I see a lot of progress uh, on that front within the Republican circles towards kind of more acceptance of gay people. I see it in the polls and I see it all around me. Though I'm, I'm certainly not going to pretend there aren't still issues that need to be addressed. And that's kind of what I hope to do, because people are more willing to listen to constructive criticism from someone who they feel is on their side. Right. So to some extent, that's what I seek to do. Well, I think it's um, a good point to bring up because obviously you brave social media. And I say brave because, you know, if you are going along with sometimes mainstream media, I'm sure you get a lot of backlash from liberal people who say, how can you be openly gay and lean conservative? Yeah. So unfortunately, the people who give me the most backlash about that are often the mainstream LGBTQ ag- advocates who are at these organizations like the Human Rights Campaign that really do lean solidly Democrat. And they view the Democrats as their team. And they almost think that if you're gay or if you're transgender, your identity should so vastly outweigh that, that even if you're a fiscal conservative and you care about the debt and you support deregulation and tax cuts and Second Amendment rights and all these other things, but at the end of the day, you've got to be on our team because we're the good guys on this issue. And I just think that, you know, maybe there was more validity to that framework 50 years ago when we were talking about laws that made being gay illegal. But now, I honestly, the differences between the parties are should they have to bake the cake or not, not should you be in jail or not. So I really think that we've progressed to the point where gay people get to be individuals too. So I just view myself as in every sense, an individual. Um, and so that's a part of my identity and I don't run from it, but I don't let it define how I have to think on any issue other than actual LGBT I rights. Love that. 
Brad, isn't that the Dem playbook sometimes historically, though, that, you know, they'll take a singular issue out? I, I just, I, I do think that, um, you know, I, I, I think you said it really well. I mean, you could be a lot of different things, right? You could have <laughs> on a lot of different subjects. It is subjects. their playbook. Yeah. They do do this. Um, and, and, you know, it comes from a good place in, in, in some ways in that they were the kind of the pioneers on a lot of these issues. But unfortunately, they've kind of moved on from like at least some parts of the party have moved on from standing kind of a, a small L liberal notion of equality. And now it's kind of this ultra identitarian aspect of identity politics and identity in the Democrat Party. Because to me, an ideal world is a world where my sexuality is just kind of irrelevant. It's kind yeah. of an afterthought. No one really cares. Whereas on the modern Democrat Party, that's not it at all. They want these identities to be celebrated. They want them to be at the forefront of life. And they have the, this idea that, that identities should define people and shape people and be a huge part of life. Whereas I really just want everyone to be an American and, and try to eliminate anything that really treats people differently uh, based on demographics. And so I don't really find myself at, at home with kind of the broader left of center rhetoric on identity based issues. Yeah, Sarah, you and I have talked about this. I think, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think we're one generation. If not, I think we're, we're in the younger generation away from getting, you know, what Brad's saying. I mean, I know with my two kids who you know, are 26 and, and, and 22, it's not even like it's, it doesn't even register as an issue. Like right. it's not even a, it's no, truly not so a, true. It's truly not an afterthought. Right? I think I think I mean, Brad, you, you're obviously much more well versed in politics than I am. I think that people probably give you a hard time because really no Republican president ever supported gay marriage. And it was President Barack Obama and Joe Biden who pushed it through. Now, of course, because it's already legal, Trump sort of takes credit and says, oh, I'm you know, I'm for LGBTQ rights. But isn't that really why? I mean, really, no Republican um, candidate ever was in your corner, you know, arguing for gay marriage. In a sense, that is true. Um, I mean, you can find some, but that is broadly true. But it's also true for Democrats until like five years ago. So I, the gap isn't that huge. I mean, Obama I know, and Hillary is... Clinton both opposed gay marriage until 2011. Then in 2012, the polling changed. And for the first time, gay marriage got 51% support. And all of a sudden, Joe Biden, not Joe Biden, sorry, Obama and Hillary Clinton flipped on the issue. And now they're huge LGBTQ allies. So, I, I mean, yes, they get credit for flipping to the right side of that issue first. But is it really a huge gap? I guess in a way it is. But in a way, it's just it was obviously driven by political opportunism. And, you know, Trump, I have a lot of issues with Trump, but his view on, on gay rights just isn't one of them. He, he's kind of very uh, whatever on, on most of these issues. He's ta so he's talked about, and we can debate the ins and outs of religious freedom policy that his administration has passed. Sometimes it gets characterized as anti-LGBT. Sometimes that's fair. Sometimes it's not. But just as a person, right, he's very ambivalent on gay issues. He really doesn't care. And he's made that very clear. So in that way, he's sort of a pioneer for Republicans because he's broken the mold of this kind of old school social conservative thought that had dominated the party. Donald Trump is many things. He is not a social conservative. That's for sure. Um, OK, Brad, that was a great intro already. All right. Uh, Patrick, where do you want to start, though? You know, we have we have a lot to talk about from the, you know, the Woodward book that actually comes out today. Um from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So, Patrick, where do you want to begin with Brad? Let's start with the Woodward book, I guess. You know, it's it's been out or it's been leaking for about a week. 
he did a big 60 minutes interview on sunday night 60 minutes so brad how much do you think this hurts trump do you think it just kind of fizzles is it what we thought it was you know because fauci had said in the past that trump behind the scenes took it very seriously but certainly to the public he downplayed it how much did we know is this a true revelation you know I don't think it is a huge revelation. I mean, obviously, some of the details are a little bit salacious, but everybody knows that almost every politician in America failed to take the coronavirus seriously at first, whether it was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo or Bill de Blasio. I mean, they were laughing about the coronavirus and dismissing it, saying it's like the flu. So was much of the liberal media and so much so was the CDC telling people not to wear masks. So, yes, President Trump absolutely failed to be straightforward with the public and he wasn't upfront about it and he should have been more serious about it from the get-go. But like the, this book pretends that that's some unique relevation to Trump and it's, it's just not. What about, okay, so you don't think there's anything in the book, you know, um, he's obviously going to address Black Lives Matter. You know, Bob Woodward asks him point blank, you know, do, don't you feel like being as a, a privileged white person, you can't relate? Trump interrupts him and says, absolutely not. You know, you've drank the Kool-Aid. Um, so, you know, and then at, at the end of the book, you know, Woodward makes the, the statement that Trump is not fit in office. Plus, he's also received backlash for not coming forward with this information before and saying, you know, how serious coronavirus was. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of with Patrick, like asking, pressing more. Like, I just think this is so damaging because I what to, interesting to me about those tapes is actually Trump sounded more sane speaking to Bob Woodward. It's like, why don't we ever get this version of President Trump? Like, it was so calm if he had just done that to the American people. I feel like he would be reelected. Maybe. But I guess my, my first thought is like, why who is who is cha- whose mind is changed by this right the question of is donald trump fit to be president is something that 99% of america already made up their mind about in his 2016 run or in the early days of his presidency i don't think there's a lot of budge room among voters yeah. on that question i mean i know my belief has certainly been that i appreciate a lot of the things that that the administration has done i'll give trump credit where it's due but i don't think he's fit for the office and so another book isn't going to change my mind or some new things. I mean, it's a list of, of hundreds at this point, but people who do believe otherwise aren't going to be swayed by another controversy. But I guess the real question for me that emerges out of this is who is running Trump's schedule and his media booking? Because why on earth would you give Bob, Bob Woodward <laughs> in interviews after you said his last book was a fake news hit job? Why would you do that? That makes no sense. Okay. It's just That's just ego driven wow. stupidity. Okay, Brad, are you buying the argument that it was better for President Trump to speak to Bob Woodward and and maybe steer some of the narrative than to not speak to him at all? I guess I get that argument in the abstract. That's probably generally true. But when you put it in the context of what President Trump said about Woodward last time around when he published his first book about the the Trump presidency, I mean, he called he said the whole book was fiction. He called Woodward a fabulist. So he accused him of just making stuff up. And, and, And so at that point, I don't necessarily think that that's true, but the president said it, and apparently I'll, I'll assume he believes it. If you think a journalist is literally making things up and has no credibility, then doing interviews with them isn't going to mitigate any damage. It's just going to fuel the fire because they're not going to be bound by 
the contents of the interview. So I don't know that that's actually true about Woodward, but that's what makes it so illogical from the president's perspective to sit down with the guy once again. I guess the only thing that can really explain it is that Trump loves attention, loves the spotlight, and he always has. And he always thinks he's smarter than everyone else and thinks he could get over on Woodward or somehow. It's just interesting the timing as you're going through a pandemic that you're doing all these interviews. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, but Sarah, back to your point, I I agree with Brad. I, you know, I don't know how many, although it's interesting. Ye- yesterday there was a Washington Post op-ed that Daniel Plechter wrote uh, how uh, basically it says, I can't stand Trump, but I may have to vote for him this year. And she didn't vote for him in 2016. Uh, but she talks about how the concern is that Biden has been pushed left already by the Sanders AOC wing of the party and that the leadership in the Dem party has moved left. Uh, certainly uh, even even the Pelosi's and the Schumer's of the world have moved more left to, to appease that wing of the party. So Brad, you know, do, do you think there's this group of people out there who maybe um, didn't vote for him in 16, but now might like the, like you, you know, you had mentioned to me at some point, the never Trumpers, some of them may come back to him in 2020. I think they will. Some of them, it's not a huge group of the electorate, but in this, in such a close election, it could be a vital vote. I mean, think of all the, the millions of people that voted third party or voted for Evan McMullen, um, that independent candidate who got a lot of the vote in Utah and a couple other States and Jill Stein, right? Yeah, a lot of the, well, not Jill Stein because these are these are like never Trump conservative voters. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But um, a lot of those people who protest voted against Trump in 2016, I've heard I, we we've seen some of them transform in real time from Ben Shapiro to Glenn Beck. Now they are kind of Trump supporters or going to vote for him at least. Uh, that is a thing that a lot of people have felt because, like you mentioned, I mean. Biden, he has evolved to the left. The Democratic Party as a whole has gone far to the left compared to where it was at even in 2016. I mean, I I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but Hillary Clinton, five to 10 times as much spending uh, Biden has endorsed compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016. So and, and then on all sorts of issues, one that's particularly close to my heart is that Biden has endorsed a California law that basically put Uber out of business and made it illegal to be a freelance contractor. Now that's what I do for a living. And he supports the pro act. He would regulate my job as a freelance writer out of existence. You wouldn't be allowed to do it full time. So I certainly understand the never Trump people who feel like they have no choice, but to vote for him because Biden is not offering um, a super moderate alternative. And then she, yeah, she also referenced the filibuster and, and actually the Supreme Court as concerns. I don't know how concerned, you know, in terms of the Supreme Court. So basically they would they would vote to add uh, judges to the court and make it a, a, a majority on the left in, 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 in almost perpetuity, depending on how, you know, they've talked about going up to 13. I don't know how realistic that is. It seems a little far-fetched that you know, I, I, I don't think Biden might endorse that. But certainly the filibuster, they, they've claimed they already have a war room uh, set up to get rid of that so they could, in essence, put in all this legislation with 51 votes. So certainly that would be concerning from the spending standpoint and, and certainly some of the legislation that may take us further left than the country is. You know, Brad, my point, you know, I, I, Sarah and I have talked about this. At the end of the day, you know, the left wing of the party gets a ton of attention. But in the end, 
the Democrats still voted in a 77-year-old white man. So, like, where is the party? You know, like, are, are the loudest voices, you know, the, the left wing? But I, I certainly it doesn't appeal that the majority of Democrat voters are that far left. So where is the party is a very good question. And Joe Biden himself has answered it for us. He says, I am a transition candidate. The Democrat Party is in transition and it is shifting quickly towards the left wing, more radical branch, kind of represented by AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, these types of people. For now, there's still enough kind of establishment mainstream power in the halls of Washington, D.C. to keep that in check. But it's quickly loosening and they are quickly conceding more and more ground to the left. You can name many issues where the Democrat Party has drifted to the left, but you can name essentially zero where they've drifted to the right or towards the center. So the, the, the gravity is all going in one direction here. So I agree. It's absolutely not the party of AOC yet, but that is the direction we're headed in. And I think Biden's candidacy is actually quite emblematic of that. Because if you look at where the young voters voted, if we, you look at where the kind of the, the next generation of Democrats voted, they were voting for Bernie and Warren and Kamala. And then it was kind of the older and African-American older Democrats who backed Biden. And so it's yeah, listen, of, I may, I've made the point of South Carolina doesn't happen to be the fourth primary or really the third primary because, you know, Biden's out. He's well, out. Mm. He, I mean, he's not the candidate. He's out. I mean, he talk about timing. South Carolina saved saved his candidates, and um, so which and is, which, which look is look at his VP. I mean, Kamala Harris. She's not quite as left wing as Bernie Sanders, but she's pretty close. If you look at voting record analyses, uh, they put her in the top five most liberal senators in the Senate. So, and, Brad, what are some examples? What are things that she voted for that would put her in that category? Medicare for all. She she voted many times to outlaw private health care. Now she she whiff she whiffed and waffed about that during the primary, but she she backed total left wing health care policy many times. She she has a total anti gun voting record. Um, I mean yeah. So so if you look at there's two analyses, um, even kind of left wing ones will cite her as one of the most progressive people in in the Senate. Uh, so she's the one who is kind of being set up as the heir to the throne. Brad, do you think she was the right choice? No, I don't. I don't think so at all. But also, I'm not the target audience of the Democrat Party. <laughs> um, but so I, I think she wasn't the correct choice for a couple reasons. One was that I don't really see who she brings into the coalition because, and hear me out on this, right? The true left wing does not like her because of her record as a prosecutor that was very corrupt and she hurt a lot of people yet kind of actual african-american voters don't particularly like her and joe biden has them on lock so i just don't really see the constituency that she's bringing in she has very low favorability ratings not a popular candidate she didn't perform well in the primary um, and she's very divisive in a lot of ways with her her background and her the way she behaved during the the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation debacle. So she is very much a polarizing selection, whereas somebody like Amy Klobuchar would have actually brought you a swing state representative. It would have brought you kind of a moderate person, a person with very high favorability records. Um, so I don't... I mean, the Minnesota, the Minnesota unrest and shooting probably eliminated yeah. her, right? 
Well, if anything, though, having her could help ameliorate that loss because Biden is going to struggle to to hold on to these states where you've had unrest. But having somebody who's widely liked and respected as one of the sane Democrats on your ticket compared to a really far left California liberal, I, I think would help more. Honestly, I think she was picked because of identity politics. They needed to have a woman and they needed to have an African-American woman. And so they really narrowed down their their selection list. She is qualified. Don't get me wrong, but she wasn't probably the best pick. And if they had actually picked somebody just based on merit and not based on identity politics, I don't think it would have been Kamala Harris. I actually thought it was going to be Warren. I mean, we've talked about it. I thought in the end he was going to go with Warren to move a little bit to the progressives. But um, so let's step back for one second. Where do you think the election stands right now? Biden's to lose? Does Trump's, you know, is it all on the debates? Do you believe the polls? Wow. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm pretty wary of making predictions because just if the last five years have shown us anything, it's that <laughs> pundits get so much wrong. Um, I will say I don't think it's all up on the debates. I mean, the debates could have some impact if there's a viral moment or a really controversial position that one of the candidates takes. But by and large, most of the people that tune into the debates are very politically active already. And those types of people tend to already have their minds made up. So there is some voters who will be watching the debate to kind of decide who to vote for. But that's a pretty small portion of the audience of who watches the debates. It's more people, I don't know, like like you and me who, who are involved yeah. in this and already have kind of firm investment in one side or the other. Or, or there's not a ton of blank slate voters left at this point i really think it's going to come down to all uh, just a couple swing states really i mean honestly you see the national polling you should almost ignore it completely like biden up plus seven national popular vote polling great that doesn't matter show me wisconsin show me michigan uh show me florida and those are the the states where actually at least in florida um things are looking pretty good for trump i was gonna say that's scary and ohio is starting to look better for trump yeah, I, my contention is it's all on Wisconsin because I think Arizona is actually going to move to the Dem column, in my opinion. I think Michigan will go Dem. I think Biden will figure out a way to win Pennsylvania. I I, I have this feeling it's all going to come down to Wisconsin. It, you know, uh, Brad, Brad, but, what we'll happens see. if Trump gets reelected? You know, I, I, I mean, I'm very clear on who I'm going to vote for. So, you know, I. I what happens if Trump gets reelected? Because I'm with Bill Maher. I'm with you. I think it's very close. I think it's very scary that Trump has a really high chance of getting reelected. What happens if he gets reelected? Well, it depends how the the kind of the broader left speaking generally responds to it. If he wins uh, a clear electoral college m- majority, but he loses the popular vote. Um, well, our system doesn't work about the popular vote. Maybe you want to change that, but that's not what the Constitution says. And until we change it, the rules are the rules. However, if liberal media and, liber- and Democrat politicians, really, they could declare that they don't accept him as the legitimate president. He lost the popular vote and they could send the country kind of spiraling into a potential constitutional crisis. At the very least, they could sow enormous discord and and backlash with Trump versus, versus them. And it could really be a disastrous situation because if Trump wins, the most likely scenario is that he's not going to win the popular vote. Yeah. Um, that's just the way the system is set up. And 
it's also, in my opinion, kind of a misnomer to look at the popular vote because politicians don't campaign for the popular vote and voters don't vote as if we're under the popular vote system. So just to give you an example, like where I'm from in Massachusetts, it's a deep blue state. So most Republicans don't bother to vote. They would, though, if it was a popular vote election. So looking at the toll that the final popular vote tally from an election where we use the Electoral College, to me, it's always kind of beside the point. So liberals are going to have to decide whether they want to throw the country uh, into upheaval or whether they just want to focus on winning and look at themselves and ask, why are we losing to a person who is a very weak candidate and a very disliked person? Because clearly we're doing something wrong. Okay, so then that's what happens. That's let, what I would suggest. Maybe more optimistic. What does what do Biden and Kamala Harris have to do in the next? I mean, what we're down to like what sixty days less than that. What do they need to do to win? Steer away from radicalism traps. So, for example, Biden put out a very good statement about the two police officers who were shot over the weekend, where he denounced it specifically, talked about how he's pro-police, just not the bad apples. We need more of that from him. Ah. For example, if he has to stop worrying so much, or at least his campaign, about like what journalists might say on Twitter. But at the end of the day, like for example, in all the unrest and the, the kind of rioting and looting, he's put out a few statements condemning it, but he really should have been it would have been to his politically bene- political benefit to denounce it much more thoroughly, to say Antifa is a disgrace. I do not accept their behavior. You should not be rioting and looting minority communities. That is not social justice. I will not allow that as president. If he'd come out even more forcefully on that, uh, that would really help him because the only way he loses is if the Trump campaign successfully ties him to kind of this left wing chaos that is perceived by a large swath of the American public that leans Republican uh, to be taking over California and cities that are having rioting and looting. If they can tie him, Biden, to that, then they win. But if they can't, then he'll hold on to his lead and he'll he'll win the election. Mm. Right. Where do you think the so so the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement, separate from the organization? So I saw a poll that the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement lost 10 points, I think, uh, in the last poll I saw on people, you know, supporting, supporting the movement. And I think that's not necessarily the concept. It's more the organization. And, you know, Sarah, you were talking about the protests in, in Lancaster where, you know, the video, you know, police shooting, the video looks clear that it was justified. Again, still needs to be investigated, but it, you know, based on the video we've seen, it looks clear. Yet there was still rioting and protests. So, Brad, where, how, do, how do you think BLM plays for the next fifty days for Biden? And I mean, is that your point that he needs to be 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 clear on where he stands? Yeah, well, at the beginning of this kind of period of of unrest with Black Lives Matter and everything else, right after the death of George Floyd, it was a big boon for Biden because voters generally view him as more capable of healing racial divides. Mm -hmm. When there was peaceful protest, when we were discussing, you know, criminal justice reform, which I personally believe is long overdue, that was really good terrain for Biden politically. However, When the country kind of over the last few months, many major cities had rioting and looting and Democrat officials like Ted Wheeler in Portland and Jenny Durkin in Seattle 
kind of sat on their hands really and allowed it to get out of control and then only shut it down once it was too late and some people were hurt and lots of damage was done, well, then that puts Biden in a very tough spot because his movement, rightly or wrongly, is perceived to be the home of Black Lives Matter. It's Democrat-run cities with mayors who are Democrats and city councils who are Democrats where the, where this is happening. So the, the rioting and looting, if people think that that could happen in their neighborhood, bang, they'll vote for Trump. And there'll be those people who are, I really don't like Trump, but I feel like I have no choice. So really, that's where Biden has struggled to thread the line between still being kind of the pro-reform, pro-racial justice candidate, but also saying, listen, we got to have rule of law in this country and vandalism and crime is unacceptable. Crime rates are going up in this country in major cities, serious spikes in crime. And that is the kind of thing that, that people at the end of the day will take with them into the voting box. So it's, it's concerning for Biden, the direction that this has gone in. And that's part of why rioting and looting are so counterproductive. Like you mentioned, there's a drop in the, the polls for support for BLM. Um, that's what always happens. You can look at research. Peaceful protest works to advance a cause, but violent protest and vandalism always end up sabotaging the cause in the mind of the public. Brad, how do you think, though, OK, in Lancaster, for example, right? In reality, there was only about 100 people protesting and wreaking havoc. That's not what we saw, you know, in George Floyd in Minneapolis. I mean, you know, you're talking thousands of people. That's not what we saw in D.C. I mean, to me, sometimes this is where the media drives me insane, is they give these these small groups, you know, that I mean, anybody can wreak havoc anywhere, you know, huge press when it's like, okay, but a lot of people are siding with the police so far in this incident. And yet it seems like still people, the media makes a huge deal about, well, 100 people came out and threw rocks through businesses. It's like, yeah, they shouldn't be doing that. But I mean, really, that's a very small group compared to what we've seen. Like, to me, that's what drives me insane about the media. So the Lancaster group in particular was kind of small, but the, the devastation and destruction we've seen over the last, last six months is not. So in Minneapolis, for example, um, and not just over George Floyd, but over subsequent events, you have total of at minimum 1,500 businesses and properties destroyed or vandalized in riots and looting. I mean, in Portland, you have entire city blocks that were left in ruins. So I agree with you that sometimes it's overhyped, but that part of the reason that happens is because it's allowed to fester out of control. So if in Lancaster, if it was shut down immediately by the police and by local officials, then there wouldn't have been so much for the media to run with. But a lot of times they allow these things to get out of control. And then there's stuff that goes viral about all cops are bleeps spray painted on the police district building. And the, the, the in even in Lancaster, there were private businesses that were destroyed and looted and ransacked. And so when you have people creating victims in real time and not facing much in the way of consequences, that's always going to grab media attention, rightfully yeah. so, or wrongly. So it's, in, it's interesting you say that because Sarah and I have talked, and obviously being in D.C., we talk about Mayor Bowser a lot. And I actually thought, I think she's done a fairly good job at threading the needle between police reform, policing, and Black Lives Matter, and uh, you know s- systemic racism and so on. That I'd I like to get your thoughts, being in D.C., what what you think there, because I do. So, so one yeah. of the silver linings on all of this, you know, they released a video of the D.C. shooting, which happened several weeks ago, right away. 
I think the video in Lancaster came out right away, which is which is good. I mean, so so to me that we're seeing, yeah. you know, firsthand. Uh, now, both in those cases, it appears they benefited the police. I do think we need to see the videos where uh, it may not benefit the police right away as well. You know, and, and there may be some reasons why why you, you can or, or cannot see that video. Uh, so, so I'd like to get your thoughts on, on the local mayor and and um, how she's handled you know between Chief Newsham and, and 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 obviously being in the nation's capital. I like you know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on her? Right, actually. So Muriel Bowser, at first, when it happened, there there was some rioting and looting in D.C. that was allowed to go out of control for a little bit. But then she kind of did put her fist down and there hasn't been much in the way of that ever since. So I give her credit for that because a lot of city officials haven't done that, though. What I will tell you is that I've heard a lot of things kind of on background or people whispering to me that Trump basically told her he had no she had no choice. She had to do it or he was going to send in the feds. Um, and, and so that's when she finally kind of shut down the riots that had broken out in downtown DC. So it is, it is interesting, but it is an example. Like, I don't want people to think that, that the argument is all Democrat mayors are bad and allow rioting and looting. That's just not true. I mean, there's so many cities across the country that haven't had an issue with this that are run by Democrats. It's an issue of some of them have sat on their hands or like Ted Wheeler in Portland kneeled with the protesters and begged them to forgive him. And they still like burned his apartment complex. Yeah. They Um, said to move out. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah, He said (laughs) to move. Yeah. But like in in Boston and all other sorts of cities, you just haven't had this issue. They're run by Democrats too. So, I mean, Democrats are fully capable of enforcing law and order and being good local officials it's just certain high profile ones who have decided to bend to to really what can only be called mobs and we've seen first first and foremost how that backfires politically but also how people get hurt and how it hurts communities economically um so that's really really cause for concern Mm, that's a fascinating take yeah Brad, you're, I, I like some of your thoughts. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. Um, well, where else do we want to go? Because we, we wanted to cover Lancaster. Yeah, yeah, Patrick, go ahead. No, let's let's you know change from politics to how about something called cuties? Oh, God. Oh, okay, thank you for bringing this up. So, yes, yeah, so cuties. What is your thought? You know, very controversial film on Netflix. So far, Netflix has said they are not going to take it down. Yes, sir. So why don't, you, why don't you give some context on the movie? Right. So it's, you know, the film was made by a French director and um, I believe she's Singalian, woman of color, woman director, all these great things. She does this film called Cuties, which is supposed to be a coming of age film of um, this one young girl who's the protagonist. She is raised in a Muslim family, but she's also exposed to via her phone and school, lots of sexual images, lots of um rap videos, music videos, all the things that kids are exposed to at 11 years old. So then she decides that she's going to kind of hang out with this rough group of girls. They're going to become raunchy dancers. And, you know, the whole film is very disturbing. Yet Netflix says they will not take it down. Um, There's some really bizarre scenes where, like, these 11-year-old girls, they zoom up close on their chests, on their midriff. There's two 11-year-old girls, like, having a pillow fight in a bed after watching a, uh, a raunchy dance video where then a woman, like, exposes herself. It's... Very bizarre, but but also getting a lot of debate. You know, you had a vulture writer write that it was brilliant up until it was released in the United States. People, it's been getting rave reviews overseas. It was celebrated. 
Uh, Brad, what are all your thoughts? You know, the, the image, the original poster image of this film was of four little girls and you would never, they, they look like they're going shopping. They look like they have nothing to do with dance. In the U.S. for Netflix, they post, you know, four girls booty dancing as the trailer picture. So what are all your thoughts, Brad? Yeah, I mean, so I'm in I'm in the world of conservative media and everyone has been saying this is disgusting. This is disgrace. This is child porn. What is Netflix doing? This is horrible. Um, and I say that I get where they're coming from. But I, I guess my the, the needle I would thread is I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not here to tell you that this technically qualifies as child porn or is technically is illegal. I don't know. And I'll leave that to the lawyers to figure out. What I can say is, though, you've actually watched the film, Sarah, and I have not. But from the clips that I've seen and the images that I've seen, it's really gross. And I, I think it's really gross and unseemly and i don't understand what netflix was thinking because i get the point that you can have a film that covers disturbing things and that wants to make a political statement about the sexualization of children and whatever that's okay i get it but that's got to be done in a very deliberate and tasteful way whereas this film like you're describing seems to have tried to do this by actually engaging in the behavior they're criticizing right doing close-ups of bare midriffs of 11 year old girls you're creating professional clips for pervs to circle around the internet. So even if your intention, I guess, is to spotlight a horrible exploitation that's happening, it seems like they ended up contributing to that. And so I think a lot of the outrage at this film, setting aside the question of the legality, right, just the public right. outrage is justified and it is reasonable. And it shows you also kind of how out of touch the critics can be. You know, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes and it, this movie had like a 90 something percent. Yeah, it ranks critics. very high. Yes. And then the public, just regular people, gave it like a 3% approval. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess this shows you, right? Like Hollywood, and I know this movie was built and was made in France, but it's come over to, to Netflix and it's being defended by a lot of kind of liberal culture writers and all this and it's like they are out of touch with what actual people think and this is another reminder so what do feminists think about this movie like have have, have you know what what it's i mean are they for it because it's it's done you know french media and hollywood or are they i haven't seen a lot from the hollywood types come out pro or or, or against it Oh, I don't think anybody's like even touching it. I mean, I think the way it was marketed in the U.S., it's really hard to watch it non-biased, right? I think if they had marketed it as the way that it was marketed as a French film, I don't think you'd be viewing it is the eyes of like Brad was saying of like, who does this, who's really watching this? Who's this for? Because my argument is, I just don't think parents are watching this with their 11 and 12 year olds and going, hey, these are the dangers of being exposed to adult images when you're young. You know, I think the responsible parents are already having those conversations or they're putting some sort of block on kids' phones so they can't access these things. So it leaves you to say, well, who did Netflix want to see this? And to me, they they left it open, kind of like what Brad was saying, to a really like dark underbelly of people that are probably going to watch this and circulate. But isn't the film really for adults? Uh, well, here it is. It's marketed as that, but I don't know that it was marketed that way in France. But it is, which, which is a little more disturbing if it is truly for adults. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's definitely one. But you know, at the same time, I always think, is there. It, 
did the director kind of achieve what she wanted, which is now everybody is having conversations about child pornography and images on the internet and what kids are exposed to. So I don't, you know, on that side, you're like, well, people are talking about it. So is that a good thing? Mission accomplished if the point was to start this conversation, but I guess it's at what cost. And I'm just disturbed by the idea that Netflix has available for streaming. Honestly, what pervs would view as like, high quality content available for them to just look and share. And, and it's really, I, I, I won't watch the movie because I'm just really grossed out by it. And I, I guess I know I it's, it's Netflix definitely should have seen this coming. I mean, yeah. who's who's running behind the scenes there that but they Brad, thought? Why did they not care? They now are at 190 million users. They're making record money. They don't need this controversy. Why do they do this crap? So I guess it's 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 kind of the long march through our institutions, is how conservative thinkers would call it. But kind of the far left thinking, um, the very woke people have migrated from the colleges and the, the academy, and they now occupy positions in the government, positions in the media and journalism, and positions in Hollywood and cultural institutions. And honestly, like boycott culture is such an online thing, but it's not really real. Like people cancel Netflix over cuties. But honestly, in the grand scheme of things, the number of people that actually cancel it is probably going to be pretty low. Yep. So they're Im- they're basically they have this mass market and they're immune to viral outrage. I mean, cancel Netflix trended on Twitter, but I'm sure they only lost a couple ten thousands subscribers. Yeah. And like you said, they have one hundred and ten million. Yeah. So in, they can in the, do whatever in the scheme they want. of things, it's it's they probably lose that on a given week just because people can't afford it. I mean, it's just. It's, yeah, right, right. People it's, just are it, cutting. It's it's immature, and and the base. I mean, the, Sarah and I. It's interesting you brought up the cancel culture. You know that. You know, I go back to you know when the, the first the first sign of that on college campuses. I uh, remember all the safe space stuff, and then certainly I remember Condoleezza Rice, probably one of the most respected political figures in the last, you know, who knows, thirty, forty, fifty years. Um, gets canceled at Rutgers University. And this is going back probably now eight years, well before Trump. And it's just, it's one of the concerns I have is that we're at a point now, no one's listening to the other side at all. Like they just, and and by the way, not only are they not listening, if you don't agree with them, you're the enemy. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, how do you change that? I mean, how do, how does, is this just going to get worse and worse? Or is it, I mean, people were afraid to post puppy videos during, you know, you know, the, the George Floyd situation because they were going to get called out for not only focusing on that issue. Or and and listen, this isn't just you know a singular issue. It's it's from both sides. Uh, I'm not sure the right listens to the left and the left listens to the right. I saw an interview real quick with with uh, Trey Gowdy on Bill Maher, and. He, he's, you know, Bill Maher asked him straight out, why did you leave politics? He said, because in eight years, no, no one's changed their mind. Nobody ever changed their mind. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that the, honestly, the, the cancel culture problem is only ever going to be solved by interleft dialogue. So one thing that I found really encouraging was the Harper's letter where you had all these different liberal and yeah. left wing luminaries and thinking and thinkers signing a letter saying we need open thought we got to stop canceling people and all of this and it's like 
Honestly, the sad reality is that Republicans and Democrats are so far removed from each other, they don't listen to each other anymore. What will the only thing that can stop cancel culture is liberals policing their own and putting a stop to it. And we are seeing signs of that happening. I mean, like the Harper's letter, you had very influential names on that. Huge list. names. J.K. Well, J.K. Rowling comes to mind, but you had. Um, yeah, so Even many. Noam Chomsky was on that list, right? Yeah. He's as left wing as they come. Um, and so that's how I think you get out of the situation, because liberals are realizing that cancel culture is a lose losing game for everybody. I mean, they had. Uh, David Shore, I believe his name is, was this progressive data analyst who just accurately tweeted out the abstract research summary of a um, paper, an academic paper that showed violent protests don't work. And he was canceled for it and fired from his job after mob outrage on Twitter. So it's like left, even left-leaning Americans are realizing that this is not a culture that, that we anyone wants to live in. So it, change will come when the left kind of moves on from this issue on their own. It also concerns me in journalism, though. I've been reading some articles about the Walter Cronkite uh, School in Arizona, where there's been two or three prominent journalists and or teachers who have been let go because of, similar to what you just said, Brad, opinions on certain subjects, and then they've just been pushed out because of social media and and so forth. I mean, if, if journalism, if journalists can't be straightforward, then, you know, I think we're heading where we are in a really, really bad Well, and it's like Brad said earlier, right? I mean, I think companies, and Patrick and I have talked about this over the years on the podcast, you know, they're caving to the mob because they don't want to stand in the fire and 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 get the bad press and and be bombarded. So it's like, okay, well, you know what? We'll appease them this time. You know, everything will go away. Then people will keep, whatever, subscribing or buying our business. You know, I mean, it seems like until now, I think because it's become so ridiculous, I think you're seeing companies go, no, screw it. You know, I, and like I think Netflix, it's one thing right? where, com- sorry, I, and I agree with you on the companies, but when journalists can't be, tell, tell either whether it's, you know, be factual on something or have an opinion on something if they're an opinion writer. I mean, obviously, you know, look look what happened to the New York Times when they, they published a Tom Cotton uh, op-ed. I mean, it, it, how many, multiple people lost their job. I believe the head of the op-ed page yep. had to resign. James Bennett, fired. Yeah. So, I mean, is that where we're at? And uh, clearly, and, and I think time, we got to, I think the we have- example is particularly disturbing because in that case, they weren't even being fired for their own opinion. They were James Dow was demoted, the deputy op editor, and, and James Bennett was uh, fired. And th- their sole crime, right, was that they published an op ed by Tom Cotton arguing to use the military to quell um, riots and looting. Right now, you could agree or disagree with that position. It's a controversial position, but it's actually supported by 40% of black Americans agree with that position, according to polling. Yet these kind of safe space journalists at the New York Times formed a mob and started saying publishing this op-ed puts black people in danger. That's really scary thinking that ideas and words are dangerous and must be stamped out. So we need institutions like the Times to stop bending to the mob. And Mm. that's when this will end. I mean, Trader Joe's actually, of all places, did this recently. There was silly outrage over some of the names of their custom food brands. And they just said, sorry, pound sand. We're not changing it. And then the mob moved on. Yep, they moved on, yeah. Companies and institutions 
need to learn that they can say no to the mob. And once they keep saying no, it's like a spoiled kid. If you keep giving them everything they want, they're going to keep whining and throwing fits, right? You have to just say no and get them used to hearing no, and then they'll stop. That's my philosophy, Sarah, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, What about, Patrick, do you want to touch on some NFL stuff? Obviously, first week back, and the headlines were that ratings were down, um, which was kind of shocking because I think last week we thought that ratings would be record high since people are home and anxious for sports to be back. Um, So I don't know if you, Brad, I know you're not a big NFL guy, um, obviously a lot of political statements um you know the players were allowed to wear uh messages on their helmets and racism black lives matter names of brianna taylor uh so what did you think patrick yeah so let me give some context so you know the thursday night game which was the first game obviously had a lot of you know intros regarding black lives matter and and systemic racism and, and racism and equality and and so forth uh which you know listen it's a fine line i you know a league that is predominantly black. It is the preeminent league sports franchise in this country. I think if they didn't address it, I, you know, there's no way they couldn't address right. it. Right. So the question is how much? And I, I do think that I thought personally, the first game Thursday night on NBC was handled very well. I, you know, now it was down 16% versus prior year. However, it was actually up versus 2008. Okay. So you got to, you know, put it in context. Gotta, That's got to really put ratings in context. You know, all, all the conservative press pundits were like, it's down 16%, but really it was up. And a lot of times a singular game on a Thursday night is matchup driven. Now, having said that, the Sunday night game, which was the Cowboys, which should have been a good game against the Rams, was down 28% versus prior year. That's significant. Is that related to, you know, the, the, the singing of multiple national anthems? Because they're singing the black, the, you know, the black national anthem and then the, the, the you know, obviously the, the, the actual national anthem. Uh, is, it, is it because of, of all the stuff pregame? I have no idea. Personally, I'm not going to not watch a football game. I, I can't see how someone doesn't watch a football game because they're supporting end racism and equality. I'm not sure who that person is, but clearly, you know, when you look on Twitter, there's a lot of people out there who said, I'm not watching the NFL. I'm done with the NFL. I'm done with the NFL, which, again, similar to cancel Netflix. I, you know, is it a large percentage, small percentage? I don't know. So, you know, I just, I get the, I guess the question for Brad is, you know, or, or you, Sarah, um, how, you know, it is, these are consumer driven businesses. So, you know, where, where does a league like the NFL, you know, clearly they have to listen to their consumer. Mm-hmm. The players are being paid by the viewers for the most part. And obviously the networks in turn, the viewers, um, you know, it, it, you know, there's a lot of companies out there who f- I'm sure are feeling pressure a to address it, but then again, how much, you know, how, how much, do, so uh, how far do they go? What I, what I think is, is simultaneously like a few things can be true at once and people struggle with nuance, but I'm going to, I'm going to take kind of a nuanced answer here. One, these athletes have a platform and they have every right to use it just like every other person. Um, but at the same time, I do understand 
And yeah, the general tenor of their message is unobjectionable, but I do understand the frustration with some of these athletes for what feels like pandering and what feels like hypocrisy. So I'm not as familiar with the NFL, but I can speak to the NBA a little bit. So, for example, in the NBA, they allowed social justice messages to go on the back of players' jerseys, but they did. So they would allow, you know, Black Lives Matter, all sorts of that sort of things. But they wouldn't allow, for example, for a pro-life player to say, save unborn babies. And more importantly, they would never have allowed free Hong Kong to be on a jersey. Right. Because the NBA sucks up to communist China and doesn't want to make the, 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 you know, the Chinese communist. I I saw the China example a ton on Twitter. But that's what I'm saying, where I do think these frustrations, it's not just like people are offended by equality and anti-racism like no i anyone who's truly offended by that has their own problems right but more more kind of decent people can be put off by what feels like hypocrisy you know it it, that's a good point brad right racism is a very real problem but lebron james is not the poster victim of it right i mean this dude is a multi multi multi-millionaire one of the most fortunate and influential and privileged people in the world and so to hear him, of all people, kind of lecturing us about how racist and evil America is, I understand why I, that's a I, bitter pill. For I, I do. The, the, the only thing I'll say in defense of a LeBron is that as wealthy as he is and how influential he is, he, you know, he's come out and said if he was driving in a car, he, you know, just because of his race, he may, you know, even though he has all this wealth and all this, this, this success, he may be subject to the systemic racism just because of his his color, and and I, I can, and I can see that. Where I agree with you on the hypocrisy is, for example, when I and this is going back some years when the Dallas uh, police shooting happened, and I believe five Dallas police officers were killed in an ambush sniper style shooting. Uh, the Cowboys wanted to put. The, the players or the team, I should say, Jerry Jones, wanted to put the name of the police officers either on their jerseys or on their shoes. I can't remember exactly. And they were told no by the league. See, that's so then, right. So then now, like, so that's where I think you start getting into yeah, this. That's a great you know, point. You know, where, where does it? Uh, uh, it was interesting, though, back to the L.A. Uh, shooting where the horrific, you know, uh, Oh, those two walks police? up to two police yeah. officers, shoots them, you know, on broad daylight, sitting in their in their in their cruiser. Um, I can't remember who it was yesterday, but somebody called out LeBron and asked them, "Oh, it was actually the chief of police for the L.A. County Sheriff in Villanueva." In well, I think it's the L.A. County Sheriff. I think it's Alex Villanueva uh, called out LeBron and said to match the one hundred seventy-five thousand dollar reward for evidence or for information on who who the shooter was and i haven't seen lebron's response that's not i only saw it late last night so i you know i think you're starting to see this kind of come maybe full circle a little bit and listen maybe at the end of this we see both sides right maybe maybe the nfl regrets the colin kaepernick how they handle it but maybe they also regret how they should have allowed the dallas police officers to be on the jerseys but at the same point you can't have every cause all the time on on there you know so it's it's a it's very that's a great point yeah and i I liked that sheriff that challenged lebron to do that you know and aren't we about equality and justice for everybody i I, and i've said this and listen i know it's in europe and i'm a huge soccer fan brad i i personally believe so racism in international soccer has been a problem for a long time long time 
lot of black soccer players, especially playing in like, you know, the historically more white Premier League. Now, the, the Premier League's come you know, a long way in the last 10 years. Uh, the, you know, they, they had end racism messages in the stadium, uh, on banners, a moment of silence for a long time. And then when George Floyd occurred uh, in support of Black Lives Matter, the Premier League, uh, you know, they, I, I think they handle it real well. So they come on the field. Now, there's no national anthems playing because these are club teams. So there's no national anthem to deal with. But right before they get ready to blow the whistle to start, they all kneel down in a moment of silence in support of Black Lives Matter and racism. And so I just think it's very tasteful. And I actually think it sends a very powerful message that we're all in this together. So I just, you know, I, I always said I thought the, the, the U.S. sports league should, should take a look at how the European international soccer leagues have handled. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's very tasteful. It sends a message, but it's not, you know, uh, you know, maybe in some cases to, to some, some people too much in your face. I, you know, I don't know. but uh, No, I agree with that. And I, I, I yeah, I mean. The one thing I regret is that we no longer seem to have areas of American life that are politics free. Um, and maybe that's okay, but we need to find a way to do that that isn't so divisive and rife with hypocrisy and that we can still all get along and sh have things in common because that's really important to the country that, you know, you and I might go in and vote for different candidates or campaign on different sides of an issue, but at the end of the day, we can both be fans of the same team and talk about it and get along. And, and when politics, when politics infects civic life too much, it really undermines something important. So I'm hoping we can reach a, a better balance. But the last question I have, for, not the last question, but, but real quick, it's interesting you say that. Is that mostly just on social media though? Because most people I come into, I have friends who are, you know, very, very left, very right. You know, I consider myself right center. Sarah thinks I'm more right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we're able to talk. We're able to have dinner. We're able to, you know, converse. Do most Americans, in your opinion, are listening to the other side? And, you know, us in the media and the bubble of Twitter and cancel culture are seeing the, the, the polarization? Or do you really think this has happened throughout America where you're either on one side or the other. I think it's exaggerated on social media for sure. Cause social media is a bubble and it is does tend to be the loudest voices and the most extreme yeah. voices. But I mean, I can tell you it's a real problem. I mean, polling from, I think the Cato Institute showed, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but a very high percentage of Americans report self-censoring their beliefs and thoughts because they were afraid of backlash at work mm -hmm. and from their friends and, and I can just tell you in my personal life, I know lots of people who I almost can't talk about politics with. Because I will say this, and Sarah disagrees not to cut you off, but I, I believe the people who are self-censoring are only the people on the right. I don't believe people on the left self-center at all. It's also actually this new polling, and I'll send you a link to it, shows that a lot of center-left people report feeling like they can't disagree with the progressives or they'll get name called or in trouble yeah. or backlash so yeah. it's i agree with that beyond the right yeah because i you know I, I feel like i'm i'm probably like center left you know and it's like to me i always whether it's whatever comes up right it's like i always weigh is it worth you know i have an entertainment podcast is it really worth 
getting into it, even though I might feel this way, you know? And then most of the time I go, okay, I'll just move on. You know, it's not worth mm-hmm. really sharing how I feel or disagreeing on this point because what is it? Where am I going to get? That's sad. That's yeah, how a lot I know, of people it feel, is though. sad. It is sad. absolutely right. And I think in an era where, you know, working for Brad, like you do media, everybody wants to know your social media numbers and all that stuff. So you weigh, is it worth making my point to lose two or 300 followers? Or is it better to just shut up and, you know, have good followers so you continue to get jobs? That's sad. But I feel like that's what you weigh. To your point, I think you have to weigh the importance. Like, listen, I'm very careful on this podcast, what I say, what, you know, and, and, but, but I don't say anything I don't believe. But at the same time, we don't go you know, all in because we're like, well, because, well, I, I also, nor should I, right, in my position, right? I, and th- there are, there are, there are limits when you work for a corporation or a company. Sure. But, but, it, but, it, you know, certainly as an individual, and again, I'm not talking about saying anything racist or, I mean, the, the, you know, there's a line where you just can't cross, but I'm talking about just pure opinion on something. It's very difficult now. I mean, you just avoid the conversation. You don't yeah. even want to get into it. Yeah. Even within your own house. It's like. Oh, really? Not, What's going know. on there, Patrick? I mean, you can't. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying just not necessarily my house. There's oh, only oh. two of us. <laughs> wow. Kristen gives you that hard of a time. Huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Brad, what else you want to touch on? I mean, we've been. We've been yes, Brad. I know. Brad, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. So, yeah, your listeners should check it out. It's Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo. It's on Apple and Spotify, and I'm, I'm on YouTube as well. Basically, the thought is just to, to interview different people I've come across in my kind of early career as a journalist, left, right, and center, and have kind of long, longer form conversations with them about the big picture issues in our politics. Because one thing that's kind of uh, bummed me out is just having to cram things into 90 second sound bites yeah. or 500 word articles. And it can be nice to kind of talk at length with somebody, but also a lot of the shows that do that out there right now, I think can be too softball. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really excited to have some big names on. I'm going to have uh, left-wing journalist Glenn Greenwald this week. I'm going to have right-wing transgender YouTuber Blair White on next week. Wow. Uh, And I'm interested in having a real diverse group of guests and and kind of talking about serious issues with them and giving them some tough questions, too, not just kind of a fluffball conversation. So your listeners, if they're interested, should subscribe on Apple or Spotify, Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo. Yeah, so Sarah, we could get a link to his podcast and put it on the – Yeah. I post it on on the the Polini Perspective uh, Facebook page. Absolutely do that. Yeah, so that that that's uh, that's great. That's really great. Yeah, thank the, you so much, guys. Yeah, it was oh, that's great. awesome. Brad, uh, by the way, what's your Instagram? Because because your Instagram is very informative to follow. Uh, not your Instagram. I'm sorry, your Twitter. Your Twitter. I was going to say I don't yeah. use Instagram. Uh, my Twitter <laughs> is Brad underscore Palumbo. P O L U M B O. Okay, well, next will be Instagram. I need to see more pictures of your life. But in the meantime, your Twitter is very good. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having <laughs> you got me. It. All right, you got it.